Introducing the Two-Way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the Two-Way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the Two-Way for yourself at newbalance.com. All right, welcome in. Lake Kick is live. It is Thursday night. It is May 14th, the year of our Lord, 2020. Believe it or not, here we are yet again with the Jam Pack Show tonight. We're really happy to have you with us. If you're watching live, go ahead, hit the subscribe button, hit that like button. And if you're listening on the Late Kick podcast, we really appreciate that too. We've had a ton of traffic there. Those numbers continue to grow. There was this rumor, Colin, you remember this rumor, a couple of months ago when this stuff first hit and people said, oh, no one's going to have anything to talk about. They were half right, friends. There are a lot of people out there struggling right now. Uh, This show does not fit that description, largely because of you, because to be honest with you, if you missed the Late Kick Extra podcast, which we drop on Wednesdays yesterday, I had every intention of cutting that off after about 30 minutes. And there I was, 54 minutes in, still answering your questions, because you guys deliver consistently better questions than topics I would normally come up with. So you guys have done as good, if not better, a job at driving this than I have. I just... I'm smart enough to follow you because I'm smart enough to know you know what you like better than anybody at any network knows what you like. Tonight, I am going to talk about briefly a number of your questions that you've submitted, but also I'm going to start the show off in just a couple of minutes with the next three years. So pivotal, not just for Alabama, though that's the team that we're going to talk about, but over the next three years, it's so pivotal what Alabama does in relation to the echo the ripple effect, if you will, that it has over the rest of the sport. So I'm going to hit you with that in just a second. I've also got a really good question, viewer question, about J.J. McCarthy. If you don't know who that is, it's a five-star quarterback, 6'2", 195 out of New Jersey. He's committed to Michigan. I think he's the number 15 player in the 24-7 composite for this upcoming cycle. The question was very simple. I love these. They're one-liners. It was, is he worth the hype? And my answer there is only going to have a fractions to do with J.J. McCarthy and a lot more to do with Michigan. So we're going to deal with that. There is this report out today. It's pretty substantiated considering the source that you could be dealing, you, the viewer, could be dealing this fall with fake crowd noise in football games if we're looking at empty stadiums, possibly virtual fans in the stands. Now, I know that sounds all cool, and the bells and whistles, if you can afford them in those $25 million production trucks, that's what those things are worth, by the way. If you've ever walked outside the stadiums and seen those big trucks, you know, with the extenders that turn into studios, $25 million a pop. Imagine the pressure on those drivers. But do you want fake crowd noise, or do you just want one season where you suck it up, bite the bullet, and say, all right, well, we're going to hear things we've never heard before. Get your earmuffs ready. So we got a lot to talk about tonight. I'm also, man, I've, I've got so many soapboxes I could jump on. Uh, we hope to get the shows done in 40 minutes, but this one could go two hours. So let's just hope it doesn't go off the rails like that. How about the next three years at Alabama? What are they going to consist of? What do you think? Where do you think Alabama is? 2021, 22, and beyond. A lot of you watched the Clemson National Championship game when they thrashed Bama out in Santa Clara, and a lot of you thought the dynasty was starting to wane. Not dead. Only the fringe minority said, oh, it's over now. But 
there were some of you, be honest, mostly because you want it to be true, that said, mm, wheels are coming off a little bit. We've never seen them blown out like that. And I'll grant you it was a very ugly scene for them out there. But then they look to have rectified things. Recruiting doesn't fall off a bit. And they're right back there again next year until you get close to the football season. And then injuries are piling up. It's like you got the depth chart over on one side. And then you got the injured reserve chart over on the other side. And the IR chart, if you could take all those players and put them on a field, they alone could probably finish 8-4 and four in the SEC. And they were good last year, but defensively, they were off a step. And so there's this perceived vulnerability with Alabama. Now, I mean, I, I think people still respect them. I think a lot of people still fear them, but they don't view them as this impenetrable, immovable force like they used to. And they're not. I mean, people have caught up to them. There, there are two or three programs that have caught up to them in recruiting. Their rosters largely look like Alabama's roster. They don't just lean on people and win 11 games per year doing that anymore. But with Tua gone now, and with their defense very much in a state of flux, last year was probably unlike any year we've seen them have defensively. And because someone in the SEC West just won a national championship, and that team does not reside in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, I think a lot of you may perceive Alabama to be vulnerable. So let's ask, next three years, thats I like to look over three and four year increments any given period. I don't like to measure a program strength based on one year. That's why I'm not just going to sit here and tell you, oh, LSU's best program in America now because they just won the national championship. If it's, if it's that easy, I mean, if it took 10 years to build something, but you could take it away in the span of 12 months, then, I mean, what's it really worth? I'm speaking generically there, but um, Alabama, are they going anywhere or are they not going anywhere? Let's talk about this. To me, forget about all the other stuff. It's all about defense because that's where they were vulnerable. I mean, that's really, when you looked at them last year, at any point, if you said, oh, man, Remember what they used to look like? And look at what they look like now. It was all about defense. Now, I think that there may be a difference in perception versus reality for a lot of people. And I'll tell you where it lies. Pete Golding. That's where it lies. That's the defensive coordinator at Alabama. I cannot tell you how many questions I fielded in the Twitter DMs and in the email when we do the Late Kick Extra podcast and I ask you for your questions. I'd venture to guess, Colin, probably... 50-plus percent of our Bama questions are, why in the world is Pete Golding still the defensive coordinator at Alabama? Well, I asked Nick Saban that point blank today. Talked to him for about 20 minutes, uh, and he gave us a lot of really good stuff that you're going to see very soon. But basically, what I wanted to talk to Nick Saban about was there's what people see, which is stats, and there is people seeing LSU hang 46 on you, nearly half a hundred in Bryant-Denny Stadium against one of your interdivision rivals. That was crazy to suggest five years ago. So, I mean, what's the deal? Because Pete Golding's still on your staff, and there's no way that you got a coach you're not completely confident in on your staff. So what's the deal? And what Nick Saban said, and you're going to see this full interview coming up. We're going to show you some of it Sunday night is, hey, when we did things right last year, when we executed the way that things are supposed to be executed, we were good. Now, doesn't that sound so basic? Doesn't that sound so commonsensical? But yet, I want you to think about what the man said. What he said was, whereas a lot of people are over here questioning Pete Golding, and when you're questioning a coordinator, what are you largely questioning? You're questioning the ability to design and then call plays. That's really what you're questioning when you get down to it. And what Saban's saying is, um, 
it's not the play design that's the problem. It's the execution. And it's the fact that we had a lot of kids on the field instead of men on the field. And they had men on the depth chart that were injured before the season started. And that's why I think, and I, I agree with this sentiment, I think based on what I hear a lot of folks around Alabama say, you look at just results, you look at the what, they're trying to look at the why, and the bottom line is, take the LSU game. There's no way I can prove this one way or the other, but what's Dylan Moses worth in a five-point game? What's he worth? I mean, what are any of those interior guys that are injured, what are they worth in that kind of game? Injuries, are they a part of football? You're darn right they are. To the degree that Alabama's had them, I don't think, as I've said many times on this program in the last month, that they think it's, oh, it's just one of those freak football things. There's probably a lot more to it. And that's why we arrive at the next point. Because all the attrition and all the injury last year, I asked this question on our Late Kick Extra podcast this week. For all of y'all who want to bang on Pete Golding, and listen, he's got a lot to prove, and everyone's got a lot to prove every year. Success is not some continuum where you achieve it once and then you just cruise control it for the rest of eternity. You got to keep succeeding. You got to keep winning. So Pete Golding hasn't even done it yet, much less having done it and then having to sustain that excellence and that winning. But I want you to think about the attrition and the injury they had last year, and then just fill in this blank. Alabama's best defensive coordinator under Nick Saban has been who? You may go Pruitt, you may go Kirby, I don't care where you go. Fill in that blank for me, and I'm going to pause, and I'm going to let you do that in your own mind. Haven't been many of them have there. Kirby was there a long time. So it's either Smart or Pruitt in all likelihood in your mind. I don't think many people are going down the Taj Lupoi route, all due respect to Taj Lupoi. I want you to answer me a simple question. How would your candidate have done? How would Kirby done? How, how would Jeremy Pruitt have done last year, given all the injuries they had? How much better would the production have been? I think Nick Saban's argument is probably not a whole lot better. And that's why Pete Golding is still the defensive coordinator there. But the changes they did make, and now we talk about the next three seasons, as the lower third indicates, if you're watching on YouTube, and we really appreciate it because a lot of you are, Dr. Matt Ray, David Ballou, that new strength and conditioning duo, and you're going to hear a lot more about them from the head man himself coming up when we release this full interview. Here's a reality that a lot of people inside the SEC and a lot of people inside college football and a lot of people inside the University of Alabama knew last year. They used to run the block when it came to strength and conditioning. LSU bypassed them. Some other programs did too, but LSU bypassed them. Because as he has, he being Nick Saban, as he's put it a couple of times, and you're going to hear him do it again, they were still doing the stuff they were doing a decade ago, and they had not taken advantage of all the new tools at their disposal. And that's a very kind way of saying they got complacent, which is the antithesis of what they preach every single day and twice on Sunday in Tuscaloosa. LSU bypassed him in the sports science department. LSU bypassed him not just in training from the neck down, but in the way you train from the neck up and the, the understanding of the way you train from the neck down by using what God gave you from the neck up. All that stuff, you talk to some folks close to LSU about so much stuff that would blow your mind that they had such a tomorrow's vision in being able to implement during last year's run. It's never an accident. You don't win a national championship by accident, guys. It's never happened. You may win nine games by accident. You may slip up and you may have a couple of plus four turnover games and excuse your way into nine wins. You're not winning a national championship by accident. Everyone's got a secret. Everyone's got the market cornered. Everyone's got an edge somewhere. LSU's edge, one of them over Alabama, has been their strength and conditioning and sports science 
bypassed Alabama. Now think about how crazy that would have been to suggest four or five years ago. You look at Bama over the next three years, I'm a believer that the moves they just made, you view them as a necessity because Scott Cochran left, I think are gonna give them a pretty sizable edge again because they don't lack for resource. They don't lack for athletes or resource. But really, if you can keep guys healthy, and if you are next level in terms of developing, and we don't worry about that with Alabama, which we never should, then I look at two things. I look at the fact that they just landed the number one quarterback and player in America in Bryce Young, and I look at names like Will Anderson and Demoy Kennedy and Chris Braswell and Drew Sanders, and all of the guys I just named are edge rusher, outside linebacker types, all high four-star or five-star kids just from the last recruiting cycle. They've got the best quarterback in America coming up over the next couple of years, and they have got world-class terrors coming off the edge over the next two or three years. That's not a guarantee for a national championship, but I'll tell you, barring some really crazy stuff happening, it is a guarantee they're right there every year. If you can terrorize the passer, and you got the best passer or one of them in America, and you got the best head coach in America, or by anyone's metric, one of the very best of all time on the sidelines still, and you've got your strength and conditioning and sports science in order, and you have taken the next step in that department, where's the vulnerability? That I'm gonna leave open-ended because I'm sure the comment section will fill up, but ask yourself this. If we're just doing honest inventory here, ask yourself this. Some of our highest rated shows of all time when we've been doing Late Kick, before I came to 24-7, we did the show independently. Mark my words, you can set your watch to it. When Alabama loses a football game, our traffic is out of this world. So you could either claim that I'm preaching you this as an Alabama homer, or you could look at the money that we make when they lose and say, oh, he's got all the motivation for Alabama to lose. Why doesn't that guy want Alabama to lose? How about this? How about we just let the sport play out as it's going to play out and be intellectually honest with each other? And I'm telling you, I don't think they're going anywhere. But if you do think they're falling off, I want you to remove what you want to see from your mind and tell me using logic-based thought through to its conclusion mentality, I want you to tell me why you think they will be a shell of themselves over the next three years. I'll be anxiously awaiting your feedback. We move on. Boy, the Pac-12, hmm. Let me, you know what, let me start it off this way. I know there have been some rumors this week. A lot of you were hitting me up about them. And those rumors were about we were just talking about Alabama, actually. The rumors were about who they're going to open up with. They're scheduled to face Southern Cal in Dallas in uh, the first week of the season. So then there are some national types who say, nope, I'm hearing that's not going to happen. I'm hearing it's going to be Bama versus TCU. So I'm on the phone with someone directly involved in that decision-making process this week. And they're telling me, uh, no, that stuff's pretty much made up. We have not settled anything. We fully plan on playing Southern Cal. And this was off the record. This was not some statement I was reading from a conference commissioner. Point being, no one has the slightest clue what's going on. One of the lost arts and lost skills in our industry is to know when to say, I don't know. You don't have to know everything. You don't have to pretend to. No one thinks you know everything. And even if you think you know everything, you don't know everything. So I will be honest with you enough, and you know I do this from time to time, to tell you, Shrug of the shoulders, I have no clue what's gonna happen here. But in a larger sense, I know the Pac-12 has got a mighty big decision to make. And there have been governors here and there, and there have been dignitaries and local officials and 
whispers from conference commissioners and university presidents, but really it's like nine different ways from Sunday. No one really knows what's going to happen. But when it comes to who's going to play who on the opening weekend, don't listen to any of that. There's no news to be had. There's no inside scoop to be had because the guys who are responsible for making the decisions, they don't know. Here's what happens sometimes. It's like, imagine if I were talking to Colin and I were saying, man, I hate surprise birthday parties and my cousin threw a surprise birthday party for me this past weekend and man, I'm going to kill my cousin next time I see him. Let's say I said that to Colin, but you peeked your head around the corner and all you heard was me say, I'm going to kill my cousin. And you ran off and said, I think Pate's going to kill his cousin. Well, you would have technically heard me say that, but you would be totally wrong and you would have mixed the or missed rather the context entirely. That's largely how these rumors get started. Someone hears a fraction of a conversation and then they take it and they run with it because they really want to be a source. There's nothing better. There's no better street cred than being one of those good old fashioned sources in this industry. And of course, if someone's telling you, why not run with it? Because you got your source. You're not just making things up. So announcements about September and October in early May are stupid. I'll just tell you point blank, that's how I feel about it. And I've gotten some feedback from you guys. I, don't, I know you're being intellectually honest with me when you say, I think the reason they're trying to make these announcements in May is so they can get a head start on all the moving pieces and getting all the things into place that need to be put into place. But I keep pressing you, and I'll still press you. What is it that you're accomplishing by making an announcement on May 10th or 11th that you couldn't also accomplish by making the announcement on June 11th or even July 11th. I still haven't gotten a straight answer on that. I've gotten very generic, very broad answers, which basically tells me, I don't think you guys have thought that through nearly as much as I have. And I'm telling you, no one has the ability to fully think it through, but the Pac-12, and I want you to hear me loud and clear on this, it's a very unenviable position to be in, and I'll grant you that. The Pac-12 will cease to exist as a conference, as you know it, if they don't have a football season this year. And there is no way around that. And I know the situation flat out sucks, but there are going to be some tough decisions being made here. But I want you to think far past just the financial impact, okay? This is a conference that's not already on equal footing. If this were the Big Ten or the SEC we were talking about, it'd still be a big deal. This conference is already sorely lagging behind the big boys. They're still labeled a power five, but in many of the blind financial metrics categories, they are not the equal of what you would consider the other power four, really the power two, and then the ACC, Big 12, and Pac-12. I want you to think about how rosters would be affected. Let's get past the money for a second. If I'm a junior and I'm in the Pac-12 and I'm planning on playing on Sundays, and all of a sudden I find out, hey, let's say I've graduated already. I'm a junior, I'm a senior. Let's say that I find out we're not going to have a season and they're going to play football in the ACC. Well, am I going to just count on my sophomore film carrying me to the league and then let my off-season workouts and combine do the talking for me all the way wrap it around a year from now? Or am I going to try and grad transfer my way onto a roster at Wake Forest last minute? Am I going to try to go to somewhere where they're actually going to play football? Think about how gutted the rosters could be on the younger end, the incoming kids, and on the back end, the juniors and the seniors who need, in some cases, their final year of football to really, really make it count. It's a college football player's contract year that you're taking away from them. Think about the coaches. How many coaches? Assistant and head coaches. Player support, player personnel, analytics guys, all these sorts of folks that are integral that you don't necessarily always see on Saturdays. 
that are going to sit around a year? Do they get paid? Do they not get paid? Uh, what in the world do the budgets look like on the other end? I'm going to get back to the budgetary constraints in just a second. How many guys are just going to sit out there, sit at home, instead of having these athletic departments with room to spare come and chomp them up, gobble them up? Does that happen? Do you know if it's happening? Is that a headline grabber? And what about the budgets here? I mean, it takes money. Money makes a conference go around just like it makes the world go around. Football operations, even if and when you come back, if you lose a season and you try and come back, your football operations budget is a fraction of what it was. Your recruiting budget, by and large, is a fraction of what it was. You cannot compete. You're already having trouble doing it. You cannot reasonably expect a conference to take a year off and then come back and compete. So all, I say all that to say this. I have no clue what's going to happen. We'll see. Those are the two quotes that need to be practiced early and often right now. Again, I don't wear my watch tonight, but I still look at my wrist out of habit. It is May. It is May 14th. After that comes June and then July. And then it's the month where you start putting on some pads and practicing. A lot's going to happen between now and then. Pac-12 is going to find a way to play football. You know how I know that? Because if you've ever seen the movie Armageddon, and they first find out that asteroid's headed towards Earth, and they ask about the impact, and they're saying, hey, what are we talking about? Wiping out the eastern seaboard? Are we talking about, um, I don't know, a, a, an inconvenience for some major cities for a couple of months? Well, no, it's a global killer. It's, it's an extinction-level event. Well, then all of a sudden you realize, well, uh, obviously we can't have one of those. This is, in a lot of ways, an extinction-level event for a major conference. If it can happen to the big boys, it can happen to anyone. So it, in and of itself, has a ripple effect throughout the sport. It is very much a shame that you have to deal with it, but you got to deal with it. And you better get the most creative minds and innovative minds in the room all around the same table, lock them in there, and don't let them out until they have a feasible way that we can safely play football from coast to coast this fall. So I was looking through the Twitter inbox a couple of weeks ago. Had a question about a kid named J.J. McCarthy. Some of you, if you're a hardcore recruiting fan or a Michigan fan, you know the name. If not, you may not. But anytime we have a hyper-nuanced question, I try and expand it to where it's relevant to you if you're an Ohio State fan or a North Carolina fan. And so that's what I wanted to do with this question. So a couple of weeks ago, I was asked by Butch in the Twitter inbox, follow me on Twitter if you don't already, at LateKickJosh, and he said, essentially, is the hype real? surrounding J.J. McCarthy. So who is he? For those of you who don't know, he's a 6'2", 195-pound, five-star pro-style quarterback out of New Jersey. Michigan has recruited the New Jersey area very well. Uh, he's got a very, very good arm. He's our number 15 overall composite player in the 24-7 sports composite. He is a Michigan commitment. This is not a kid who's on campus. It's for the upcoming cycle, the 2021 cycle. So I told Butch at the time, I could just read our scouting report right off a computer screen on camera for you, and I could pass that off as an answer. But I wanted to do some due diligence. So I reached out to a couple of our national recruiting guys and regional recruiting guys, and I wanted to ask about J.J. McCarthy. I need to know about him as well. So I asked, who is he? And consistently, the feedback that you got from people close to Michigan and then people who have scouted him in person is, big game, you can count on him. He's had a lot of clutch moments already in his high school career. He's not necessarily a huge mobile threat, but and he's very comparable to Joe Burrow in this way. You can count on him to extend plays 
And when plays break down, he's good enough with his legs and good enough with his vision to use his lower half to stay upright and use his upper half to keep his focus and vision downfield. So he's a guy who can extend plays. He's got an elite mind and an elite arm. Those are most of the boxes that you want checked. The only real concern that, as far as I can tell, that they have keeping him from being a freshman All-American is, is he strong enough? I mean, is he, is he wiry or is he built physically to handle the rigors of a 12-game season, a full Big Ten schedule? And if he's got that, then he checks all the other boxes. And you got to figure, even if he comes on campus and doesn't have it immediately, I mean, these folks specialize. They've been doing it for a million years. They can put 15 or 20 pounds on you. So they will do that. And so it's not an if, but it's a when with J.J. McCarthy. But is he worth the hype? That was the question. Because you can have all the tools in the world. You go to the wrong program, doesn't matter. You're either washing out or you're transferring in a couple of years. So my answer as to whether this kid is worth the hype is directly tied to Josh Gaddis. Is Josh Gaddis worth the hype? You remember Gaddis was the wide receivers coach at Bama, and then Jim Harbaugh plucks him and makes him his offensive coordinator in Ann Arbor. At the time, a lot of people were not necessarily in tears to see him leave Alabama. They didn't think that he was equipped to be a successful offensive coordinator. Very mixed results year one. They certainly did not hit the ground running at Michigan. I think they showed a lot of promise towards the end of the year. But the jury's, to me, still kind of out. I think that's fair to say. If Josh Gaddis were sitting right here, I think it would be fair to say to him, I think the jury's still out on whether long-term you're going to turn Michigan into some prolific offensive team. If you're being honest, I don't think he could argue with that. Now, here's the whole point. If Josh Gaddis is legit, and if I'm not big on judging teams' future based always on their past, Michigan has not been prolific offensively. That doesn't mean they can't be. They just haven't been. Okay, but you're not always chained to what your former identity has been. They've never made a hire. Jim Harbaugh's never made a hire like he did with Josh Gaddis. If Gaddis is legit, if he's worth the hype, then absolutely J.J. McCarthy is worth the hype. But ultimately, what you have to do, if I am a high four-star wide receiver living in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, is you've got to make that block M attractive to me. And the only way to make it attractive is results put points up, light up the scoreboard, and make it feasible, make it reasonable. I mean, give me an argument, a legitimate reason to go up there and play in 25 degree weather. If you couldn't recruit kids north of the Mason-Dixon line, Ohio State would never be able to do it. It's possible, but at the end of the day, if you're not recruiting elite perimeter skill from the south, you're dead in the water. If you're up where Michigan is, you're dead in the water. People scoff at this, I don't care. Facts are facts, guys. You got to recruit perimeter talent from the South. That doesn't mean every now and then an elite wide receiver won't come your way out of Minneapolis or maybe Detroit or Ohio. Yeah, it can happen. Cincinnati puts out some good kids. I'm talking about where the entire reservoir of talent is. I'm not looking at a puddle here and there. Go to the reservoir. Guys, I don't know if you realize this. The University of Alabama is in a state that borders the Gulf of Mexico. Even they go further south than where they are. Jerry Judy, Calvin Ridley, Amari Cooper, all these dudes who've been getting pumped into the league, what city do you think they're from? They're all from the same area. It's like they grew up in the same backyard down in Miami. Alabama's got no problem saying, we got to go down there. Ohio State's got no problem saying, we got to go down there. And Ohio State gets those kids, by the way. It gets pretty cold in Columbus, Ohio, too. So don't use the cold weather as an excuse. Don't use the academics as an excuse because the bottom line is 
Wide receivers aren't stupid. Every wide receiver that is worth his weight in gold is not stupid. You can get kids in class. If you get defensive linemen in school, why can't you get wide receivers in school? You gotta be attractive. You haven't been attractive enough for him to come up there. And everything else is kind of just excuse making. So follow the chain here. If Josh Gaddis is worth the hype, that means J.J. McCarthy will be given every opportunity to prove his mettle. I ultimately think if he stays healthy, he will be worth the hype. And then all of a sudden, early December, mid-December, we're getting towards that early signing date, and there's Michigan right in the running for a receiver out of East Texas and a receiver out of South Central Florida. And then you say, whoa, well, these, these players didn't used to give Michigan the time of day. You got to knock down the barrier, though. You got to break the dam. You got to land a kid from down there. I'm talking about a big one now. You got to land a kid like Jerry Judy or a kid like Amari Cooper. Once one of them goes, then several of them will go. But you got to give South Florida kids, you got to give East Texas kids, Alabama kids, Nico Collins notwithstanding, of course, Georgia kids. You got to break down that barrier. You got to have a stream of Southern perimeter talent moving north, or else it doesn't matter what kind of quarterback you have. I mean, he's only good as the guys he can throw it to. Tua Tungavailoa, how good is he last year if none of his receivers run a sub 4-7? Probably still good. Not nearly as good as he was. So, I mean, I, I, I appreciate the question. I hope he's worth it. I hope he's worth the hype. But he alone is not going to decide whether he's worth the hype. Earlier today, a bunch of you kind of simultaneously ambushed the late kick inbox, and you said, have you seen this? I said, context, the this. What is the this we're talking about? So apparently, Joe Buck, who is the lead NFL play-by-play guy on Fox on Sundays, he did an interview on Andy Cohen's show on SiriusXM. And he said, and these are quotes I'm reading, it's pretty much a done deal that the network might pump in crowd noise and project virtual fans in empty stadiums during the broadcast if we get to that point this year. Here is his quote. It's pretty much a done deal. I think whoever is going to be at that control is going to have to really be good at their job and be realistic with how a crowd would react depending on what just happened on the field. So it's really important. And then on top of all that, they're looking at ways to put virtual fans in the stands. This is still Joseph Buck's quote, not me. I'll talk in a second. So when you see a wide shot, it looks like the stadium is jam-packed when in fact it will be empty. Sometimes I'm out to lunch on this stuff. Sometimes I am so far in the minority that I have to check myself. You guys do a very good job of that. So a lot of, 95% of the time, I know what my audience is thinking. I talk to a lot of you guys. So you're a pretty good barometer. The few that I talk to routinely and the many of you that I talk to occasionally, pretty good barometer. So I normally know where you guys are going. Stuff like this, I have no clue. Stuff like this, Every one of you may be pumping your fists in the air in favor. Give us the fake crowd noise. Give us the virtual fans in the stands. I would not like seeing that at all. So am I in the minority or, I mean, am I right there with you? You're definitely going to have to tell me in the uh, comment section about this one. To me, I don't really feel like watching a broadcast that treats me like a baby in a crib. And just because you have all the toys doesn't necessarily mean you need to hang them all over my head here. I want you to think about something. We have options. We have the ability to give the viewer options in 2020. A lot of you on Sunday nights have been watching The Last Dance documentary series with the Bulls. ESPN's given you options. Those of you who want the uncut version, you've watched it on ESPN. Those of you who want the edited version where your nine-year-old can sit there and watch it, you've watched it on ESPN too. It didn't have to be an either or. You are a massive network 
you are ESPN. Just like if you're Fox, you're a massive network. If you want to try the experiment with the fake fans and the fake crowd noise, perhaps we can give someone that option. But let me tell you what fans crave. Uh, this I do know about you guys to a 100% certainty degree. You guys love access. As it stands now, when there are 80,000 people in a stadium, when I walk those fields before the game, or when you watch the field during the game, and you see those, those big glass globes that folks on the sideline are holding up, that's a field mic. That's to capture sound from the field. When you look at those pylons on the goal line, and look at how fancy they look with all those cameras in them, they've also got mics in them. There are wires run under the ground with just field mics. There are microphones all over the field. When you can, you love for a player to wear a microphone. Why do they do all that? It's so you can hear what's going on on the field over the loudness in the stadium. Well, now they're removing the loudness, and you're telling me we can't bite the bullet for one year and just give fans an alternate experience here? There, you'll never, trust me, you'll never have more access. You'll never have a more raw, peeled-back look at the game of football than you would if you were to watch not a spring game, not a scrimmage, but the New York Giants versus the Dallas Cowboys or Georgia versus Florida with no fans in the stands. Not that I think the latter is going to happen, nor the former, to be honest with you. But if it were to happen, worst comes to worst, give it to me. Don't give me crowd noise. Don't get, you can have your virtual fans in the stands. I don't care about that. But don't give me the crowd noise. I want to hear everything. That's what I'd love to hear. And understanding all the while, this is not permanent. You know that there's a finish line in sight for this. It's not like we're forever altering or, or changing how the game works. It's just a one-year deal, and it's going to be one of those deals in 2045 when you tell your grandkids about the football you grew up watching. It, hey, they used to tackle in this game. It's probably what you'll say. And then you'll also say, there was this one year, though, where this, this virus, things got sideways really quickly, guys. And all of a sudden, everyone canceled everything, and everyone started wearing masks, and we didn't have fans in the stands. And you could hear players breathing. It was wild. Let me pop in whatever version of technology you use to watch decades-old footage at the time and watch what this was like. I don't mind that. You know it's not permanent. I'll, I'll, take, the, um, I'll take the access over the uh, bells and whistles that you have available in those production trucks. Had a couple of questions that I wanted to knock out here. There were two of them that I kind of wanted to tie in. I almost made this an entire segment tonight. So Mac and Darian both in the Twitter inbox. They asked two different questions, and uh, some of you have, you know, I'm kind of going five different ways with this, so let me pause, gather my thoughts. A lot of you have been hurting my feelings. You've been calling me a Tennessee homer. Now, these are the first times I've ever fielded these accusations. And some of you have complained because Tennessee has been, like, at the forefront of the last five shows we've done, but I ask you, just as I asked you in the comment sections when you were throwing all those hateful names at me, I said, let's say you run a show and you are given the current state of affairs in college football, and your, your goal really is to make it interesting for the biggest portion of your audience as possible, what would you be leading with? you got a school in Knoxville that hasn't been relevant nationally in a decade, decade and a half now, and they are rolling on the recruiting trail. You wouldn't talk about that? Of course, the crickets responded in lieu of the actual hate posters. But I didn't put a ton of Tennessee in the show tonight. However, you did, because two of your questions were your programs juxtaposed to Tennessee. 
Mac on Twitter. Recently, you've discussed how Tennessee should be on the rise again, maybe becoming a national contender under Jeremy Pruitt. Now, I'm a big North Carolina fan. What do you think the ceiling is for Carolina football? We don't have the history of Tennessee, but based off national brand, academics, Chapel Hill, do you think North Carolina has what it takes to be a national title contender even after Mac Brown leaves? Bookmark that. Darian on Twitter. Also, how can South Carolina turn the program around and sort of mimic what Tennessee is doing? Do you believe Muschamp is the person to do it? So, two different challenges here. Obviously, we're talking about an ACC team and we're talking about an SEC team. I think with the North Carolina question, which was can they be sort of a long-term sustained national championship contender? Can they be relevant in the national conversation even after Mac Brown leaves? Well, that's all contingent on what their long-term investment into football is. It's really tough to be all-in invested in two sports. It's not impossible. Schools have done it. But you're talking about not a two- or three-year stretch where you just get a magical ride together and everyone's all-in on football for a little while. Now, you got to be all-in in the eight and four years, too. If they are that, then certainly. Right now, the state of the ACC is such that behind Clemson, it's wide open for someone to ascend to that number two spot. And if you're the number two spot in a conference, anything can happen in any given year. So certainly, they could be that. But number two, I think that they're set at quarterback right now with Sam Howell and then Drake May committed. Like I think they're in a really good spot at quarterback. And if you've got quarterback figured out, as we've said on this show a million times, it makes a lot of other dominoes kind of fall into place easier. Easier. It's not a guarantee, but easier. But here's what I need to know. North Carolina's hot recruiting right now, but there are a lot of unusual suspects that are hot recruiting. And you get the sense, told you, I talked to Nick Saban about this today. You'll hear it in due time. A lot of programs like Alabama are ranked in the 40s in recruiting, and we've got like Minnesota in the top 10. This is no disrespect to Minnesota. Bama's coming. Like Programs like that aren't sitting in the 40s. North Carolina's in the top five. They've been there for a long time. I think that this class for North Carolina has staying power because all the kids are from North Carolina. They haven't gone to Colorado and North Dakota and all these places. They've gotten in-state kids. Is that sustainable? Am I going to see North Carolina sustain a top 10 year-in, year-out recruiting effort? That's hard to see. Not impossible. I think one of the most underrated geographical recruiting hotbeds in America is that Carolina area, North Carolina. Always been a great place to go get players. If you can just keep those kids in state or the vast majority of them, you could put on the field an annual contender. Notice how many ifs I just included there in that brief synopsis. Now with Carolina... As Darian asked, is Muschamp the guy? I'd lean no right now. I've, I've been called, when I was doing this show in Columbus, they called me Cocky Jr. It's because at every turn, I found a way to defend Will Muschamp. And if you're, if you're not careful, I'll still do it. Will Muschamp is a guy who I thought was unfairly labeled as a forever failure because he didn't get the job done at Florida. Um, if we're thinking along those lines, it's impossible for Ed Orgeron to just have done what he did at LSU because he was a quote-unquote failure in his only other stop as a head coach at Ole Miss. So you're not always confined to what your previous results have defined you as. I mean, there are a lot of folks who are millionaires now who have been bankrupt at various points in their life. So failure now can be success down the road. However, we have not seen big-time success at South Carolina. I I wondered, is he going to take the lessons he learned from failures at Florida and use them as a springboard at South Carolina. Very mixed results so far. Now, what they have done 
is they've energized the fan base. They've gotten a ton of support. They've built really good facilities. I, I think they're swinging well above their skis when it comes to facility and donation and whatnot in South Carolina. And that's good. And that's a good reflection on the head coach. Offensively, they've been terrible. I mean, by comparison of their biggest rivals, they've been terrible. And so you bring in Mike Bobo, and we've, be, we've beaten this to death. We can't know anything more until they strap it up and play. But I've just never felt like they are a special enough preparation to differentiate themselves from the big boys. And here's the problem. If we are to assume for a second, as you did in this question, that Tennessee is sort of on the rise, then if you project, if everything just continues on its current respective trajectories, you're going to be an underdog every year to Georgia. You're going to be an underdog every year to Florida. You're going to be an underdog every year to Tennessee. That's separate from whoever else you play. You may be able to upset one of them. Any given Saturday, you can go into Athens, be plus four turnovers, and come out with a narrow win. What are we talking about here? Are we talking about pulling one big upset a year? Are we talking about contending? If you're talking about contending, you're not going to consistently upset teams. You're going to not consistently upset a critical mass of them, maybe one of them, not a critical mass. you got to do something different. To this point, the reason why the answer is maybe for North Carolina and probably not for South Carolina is because North Carolina, don't kid yourself, is in a much more favorable position conference-wise, and also because regardless of that, I don't know that South Carolina has made the necessary changes to its identity, to its football identity, to fit the classification of a program that you're about to stamp with the, you know, keep an eye on them sort of stamp. I don't think they make those. I wanted to wrap up with this question. I didn't see this one coming, but I sure am glad that I did happen to open the email inbox. Question from Malachi in the email inbox. Have you ever had something happen to you like what happened when Marty Smith helped that reporter out by encouraging him. Some of you probably know what he's talking about. If you don't, in just a second, I'm going to have Colin play the video. But I want to tee it up for you. The guy that Malachi is talking about here is a guy that I know very well from Columbus, Georgia. He works at WRBL TV in Columbus, Georgia. His name's Jack Patterson. He has covered high school football there for a long time. He has busted his tail behind the scenes for a long time. Only recently did he get, and I'm going to use the word handed very loosely because he wasn't handed anything, but in lieu of a better turn of phrase, he was recently handed a spot as an on-air sports reporter. Biggest thrill of his life. Guy was over the moon and everyone, pretty much everyone in Columbus was excited for him. So here's what Malachi is talking about. And then on the other side of this video, I'm going to give you sort of a on the ground in Columbus backstory to this. Roll it, Colin. It was billed as the game of the century once again between number two LSU and number three Alabama, but it was the Tigers jumping out to a shocking 20 point first half lead before the tie came roaring back in the second half and setting up a shootout for the ages that culminated. Oh, dang it. Don't let nobody tell you it ain't, man. For real. Do you want to know the hardest part? The hardest part of our job is what you're doing right now. The, the, the tape stand-up, hate them. I hate them, man. Because it ain't like, if, if you're live and you kind of mess up, whatever, you just keep on digging. This thing, you want to be just perfect. I can't stand them. Kill them. You mind if I get a picture or two? No, no. Because I am a huge fan. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for everything you, you got do, it, brother. Yeah. Appreciate you, man. Thank you for the advice. Keep plowing. You're doing a good job. Thank you, sir. 
All that stuff's genuine. Every bit of it's genuine. Here's the backstory. So I worked at a rival station there for a long time in Columbus. He's at WRBL, I was at WLTZ. I'd see him every Friday night at high school football games. He was doing it long before I started doing high school football. Dude just busted his tail. Behind the scenes, he's part of the, the glue, part of the fabric of any successful organization. You gotta have Jack Patterson's in order to make anything operate at an above the sea level sort of way where you actually get to see a successful product. There are folks like him behind the scenes. So I'd be at Callaway Stadium in Troop County. I'd be at Kinnett Stadium there in Columbus. These names mean nothing to you if you don't know Columbus football, but I'd see him there. And so finally, my news director, who was at WLTZ, goes to WRBL. They have an opening. They elevate him to an on-air spot. Everyone was ecstatic for him. There's, there's not a person who speaks ill of him. And so, aside from his pro wrestling takes, I don't think he's ever done anything wrong. So I would see him on the sideline, then all of a sudden, he gets to start going to these big college games. And that was the Alabama-LSU game this past year that he was there covering. And he's on the field doing his post-game stand-up. That's what all the news guys have to do. And it's hard, it's like Marty Smith said there, it's not live. When you're live, you just keep going. But when you're recorded, that's why I always love to do our shows live. When you're recorded, you feel like you gotta touch up everything. I, I don't prefer that. And it's not as authentic and genuine as it is when we're live like we are right now. So I was in Bryant-Denny Stadium when that was happening and I saw the interaction, but I was a long way away. I was like on the other side of the field. I didn't know what was happening. So he posts that on Twitter. He had his camera rolling as you saw and he just posted on there, just authentic. It's just one of those lightning in a bottle in the right place, right time moments. And it goes, as the kids like to say, viral. Boy does it. Several million views, Twitter account exploded overnight. And so back home in Columbus, People who knew his backstory were just thrilled out of their mind for him. And everybody who has their heart and mind in the right place would have told you, I'm more glad that happened for him than I would have been if it happened for me. Then you got the people who were a little bit differently wired that probably you know shook his hand and slapped his back, but then behind his back probably were very envious. But you know, folks that matter, folks that actually have their heart in the right place, Everyone there was thrilled for him. But there are people all over the place like that. So to answer your question, Malachi, um, I've had people help me, yeah. But when I see that happen, knowing how hard it is to elevate in this business, cause it is very cutthroat, by the very definition, it is very cutthroat. And to have seen him all those Friday nights in 2015, 16, 17, 18, slogging equipment all over the place, it is, 114 degrees down in Georgia when you start high school football in August and to finally have it pay off for him and then to have that happen. See, a lot of folks probably would have said, man, that guy's on TV and they just out of nowhere, this happens, all happened so fast. It didn't happen fast at all. It wasn't a right place, right time. He was in the right place for years and busted his tail and probably went through what a lot of folks would have been made to quit by going through. That's the filtration process of having to actually go through anything hard in order to elevate. You hear Michael Jordan talk about that stuff all the time on the Bulls documentary. That's the same way to succeed in any avenue. So he stuck with it and it got rewarded. And it always makes me smile when someone sticks with stuff and they finally get rewarded. And he was in that building for years and was never put on air, but was always ready to be put on air. And just like, for instance, sitting in a radio studio, I don't know, like maybe me a few years ago, just observing. Someone gets sick one day and they say, hey, slide the microphone over. You wanna do this? That's how I got my start. And so put yourself in the right place. 
The right time will eventually find you. And then stuff like that may happen. And then all of a sudden, people uh, on a worldwide scale get to see what just a small handful of us saw with that guy. That guy is Jack Patterson for years down in Columbus. So I wanted to end the show with that because that was... I'm telling you, I, I probably tweeted that out 15 times when it happened last November. I was so excited about that and still am to this day because uh, that kid's finish line is not Columbus, Georgia. All due respect to Columbus. I'm from there or just north of there in Harris County, as some of my friends in Harris County have reminded me. Uh, but Jack's going places, so really happy for him, and I appreciate the question. We will be back here this same time Sunday night. It is 8 Eastern. It is 7 Central. If you haven't already and you got questions that you want answered for the next Late Kick Extra podcast that rolls your way next Wednesday, look below the video here on YouTube. There is a comment. It is pinned. Reply to that comment with any questions. I just aggregate them. Pile them up in one document all week, and then I answer them. Until next time, you guys have a great weekend. Take care of yourself. Stay safe, and we'll see you back here the same time Sunday night.